Well, good morning, Keystone, and welcome. It's great to be with you this morning, this last Sunday in July. Can you believe summer is just flying by? And as Randy said, we're in week three of a series called Waiting Room. And it may feel like the last four months we've been permanently embedded into this waiting room. Think of all the questions that we've been asking and not getting answers to. Questions like, am I going to keep my job or not when this all settles in? And when are the stores going to be open? Are the restaurants going to be open? And when can I stop wearing this mask and keeping six-foot distance everywhere I go? Those are basic questions that all of us have been asking. And, and this series is pretty timely when you think about it. The whole series is wrapped up around this one question that we've been trying to ask and answer along the way. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? I want to begin today's talk with a story, and it's a true story that Betty Jo and I experienced several years ago. We arrived at a nursing home and went in to visit, and we weren't sure what we were going to find when we would get into that room. As we entered the room, we saw the woman laying in a hospital bed, and seated in the chair beside her was her husband. We sat down, we began a conversation, and over the course of time, we realized that she had had a stroke that had left her with significant weakness on one side of her body. It also had in fact impacted her ability to speak and her ability to swallow. As we talked, we began to understand the breadth of the problem. And then at one point, the husband leaned forward in his chair and in a soft, quiet voice said this, I don't get it. All these years, we've been faithful to God. We've served him. We've tried to be generous with our time and with our resources. And then he asked this question. How could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? How could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? Uh, it's a question that all of us, I suspect, have asked. If we haven't verbalized it, we've at least thought of it in our head when we hit difficult circumstances. I've been a pastor for over 40 years, and I've sat with a lot of people over those 40 years in life's waiting room. We've wrestled our way through issues, and, and that question has been asked over and over and over again. How could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? Parents enveloped in pain by the tragic death of a child. A couple desperate for a child experiencing yet another miscarriage. A single person who desires nothing more than to be wed to a loving spouse. And yet year after year, there's no one there and hope begins to fade. Parents feel helpless as they watch their child slide deeper and deeper into drugs. A healthy person experiencing sudden unexplained pain goes to the doctor and is stunned to hear the words cancer. Children watch in sadness and fear as their strong parent begins the journey into the emptiness of Alzheimer's. 
an unemployed person finds himself filling with anger and frustration as yet another job is given to someone else, and he continues in unemployment. Or a family prays. They pray faithfully, in faith believing that this loved one who is ill will be healed, and yet that person dies. I could go on with example after example. There are many. And then there's your story. There's your situation. The circumstance of your life, which is unique to you. And it leaves you wondering this very question. How could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? Uh, Because I'm a pastor, people often think that I can answer that question for them that I somehow know the answer, that maybe I have a Zoom connection with God and I can just call him up and say, hey God, just a quick question for you. My friends over here have this situation. Can you tell me how you let this happen? Yeah, but the truth is, I can't do that. As much as I sometimes want to, I can't. And if someday you and I are sitting in the waiting room together, wrestling through a difficulty, And you ask, how could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? I will tell you now, I won't have the final answer for you. I won't be able to give you a satisfying answer, probably. But I can tell you this. We should not be surprised that life is full of pain. It shouldn't catch us off guard. Some of that pain will be caused by our own doing, by our own choices, the decisions that you and I make along the way that that bring pain and difficulty into our lives. Some of it is our own fault, but not all of it. Some of it, maybe even much of the difficulties we face, come in not because of something we have done. They come from circumstances that are outside of our control, things beyond us to manage. There was a time in the life and ministry of Jesus when he was sitting down with his disciples and he's beginning to prepare them for the inevitability of his departure, that he was going to leave them. And he's giving them instruction about how they should be thinking and acting and preparing for that inevitability. And one of the things he told them is an important reminder for you and me today. John, one of his disciples, recorded it. And he recorded it this way. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. In this lifetime, expect many trials and sorrows. Well, you can imagine the disciples weren't particularly happy to hear that. That was not what they had hoped for. They were looking for things to settle down, to be easier, to be better, for there to be peace in the land and good for all people. But Jesus said, don't set your sights on that. And and the same thing for us. We want the same thing. We want peace. We want comfort. We want ease. We want good. And yet the words of Jesus ring so true. We will continue to struggle with trials and sorrows. The problem is that because we don't like to hear this, we oftentimes give ourselves over to what I would call a counterfeit Christianity. A form of Christianity that is not true, but is certainly more pleasing, more comfortable, more desirable. 
No longer is God the sovereign of the universe. Instead, we try to shrink God down with this counterfeit Christianity to make him more like, oh, I don't know, a grandfather. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he wrote a lot more beyond that. And in one of his books called The Problem of Pain, he put it so well. Let me just read a little bit for you. Lewis writes, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Oh, that sounds so much better than trials and sorrows, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to have a heavenly grandfather who desires nothing more for us than to see us enjoy ourselves, to live comfortably, and at the end of life say, wow, that was so good. But that's counterfeit Christianity. And counterfeit Christianity draws us in with, I believe, two lies. Lies that sound so appealing and so attractive and, and so desirable that we want nothing more than to grab onto them and make them real. Here's the first lie. The good I want is the good God will do. The good that I want for me, a good home, a loving spouse, healthy, well-adjusted children, a good job, a good income, maybe a vacation place, all those good things that I want, God will do. That's the first lie of counterfeit Christianity. The second one builds on it. The second one says, God's ways will always please me. That's the grandfather aspect, right? As a grandfather, I know how much I want to please my grandchildren. I want to treat them. I want to make them feel good and be happy. I don't want to do anything at all that would make them love me less. But you see, these two lies are built on, on a premise that if I keep the rules, God will do good for me. It's kind of a trade-off. I behave, he gives me good things. And when I pray because I behave, he answers my prayers. The good I want is the good he will do. And everything he does will please me. But I have to tell you, neither of these is true. This is not how it works. This is not true. Well, into this confusion and uncertainty, a writer named James helps us begin to think differently. Before we look at what he has to say, I need to give you a little background so you understand a couple things about this. First of all, James is the brother of Jesus. Well, technically, technically he's the half-brother. You see, they had the same mother, Mary, um, but Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and James was a product of Mary and Joseph. So I know you don't really care about that, but I have to tell you that because I went to seminary, and we learned stuff like that, and it's important that you understand that as well. So there you have it. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And at first, he was a little cynical about Jesus being the Messiah. 
He questioned it. He wasn't certain. But after the resurrection, he became convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And he became a devout follower of Jesus. In the Jerusalem church in those days where James was living, the church was growing like crazy. It was expanding and becoming bigger and healthier, and many people were beginning to follow Jesus. And James rapidly rose to become a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was a trusted voice that could be speaking truth to the people who needed to hear it. Well, as things got hotter in Jerusalem, as the oppression became greater, the, the pushback became stronger, the Jesus followers began to spread out of Jerusalem and try to find a place where maybe there wasn't quite as much conflict. James stayed behind as the leader in the church in Jerusalem. But about 20 years after Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again, James wrote a letter to these Jesus followers that were now spread throughout the Mediterranean region. And that letter has been preserved for us in our Bibles. It's called, interestingly enough, James. And why wouldn't it be? He wrote it. And he's writing to people who are now <clears throat> poor, have no homes, are hated by the Jews, even though they are Jewish in heritage, but they're hated by the Jews because they have abandoned their Jewish faith to become followers of Jesus. And they're hated by the Romans because they're Jews. And so they're under oppression. They're fearful for their lives, for their own safety. And James writes them a letter to try to encourage them. But I don't know that his opening line is so encouraging. This is what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And you want to go, oh, wait a minute, James. Really? Come on. No. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? I don't think so. But let me unpack this first statement a little bit for you. You see, consider it pure joy is not just a suggestion or a recommendation. In the Greek, it is actually an imperative. It's a command. James is ordering them. He's commanding them. He's directing them to consider the trials and challenges and struggles of life to be a cause for joy. In essence, he's starting out saying, choose joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, let me nitpick just a tad here. Choose joy. He doesn't say choose happiness. He's not saying no matter what happens to you, smile, laugh, celebrate, it's great. He doesn't expect us to walk out of the doctor's office just being told we have a malignant tumor to go, oh, this is so cool. I have a malignant tumor. Isn't that exciting? I'm so happy. No. He's not saying choose happiness. Happiness is external. Happiness is oftentimes, most frequently in fact, dependent on circumstances or on people or on something that's happening around us. Instead, he's commanding joy. Joy is internal. It's based on making peace with who I am, where I am, and what is happening to me and around me. He says, choose joy. 
which is probably a good, good, good place for us to stop and, and just bring out our big idea for this morning. Here's the big idea of this talk. You may not be able to, excuse me, you may not be in control of what happens to you, but you are in control of your response. There are a lot of things in life that are going to happen to us that are outside of our control. But we are always able to choose how we respond to those circumstances. Well, back to that first verse of what James had written, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James is reminding the followers of Jesus in the first century, but also you and me, that there are going to be trials. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be those events that happen to us, not to our liking. They're uninvited and unwelcome and oftentimes unpleasant. But he says, they are going to come. So don't be surprised. Instead, he says, when that happens, we go on. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When these difficulties come, there is purpose to it. There is even value in it. When trials and difficulties come, when we find ourselves in the waiting room again, struggling with that question of how could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen, we actually have several choices that we can pick from when it comes to a response. And I know people who have chosen each of these along the way. The first is to say, if that's how God is, if that's how he's going to operate, if that's how he's going to treat me, then I want nothing more to do with him. And they walk away. They quit. They say, I'm not going back to church. I'm not going to believe in God anymore. I'm going to throw away my Bible. I'm going to chuck it, and I'm going to live for myself because that's the best way to handle this. And they walk away. They quit. Others hold to a measure of faith, but they do so with bitterness and anger in their heart. They become unpleasant people. Oh, yeah, they still believe in God, but he is not a good God. He did this to me. He treated me that way. He failed me here. He didn't do what I asked for there. And so, yeah, I still believe, but with reservations, with an attitude, with reluctance. Nothing has changed in their life. Their religion, their faith becomes more like a suit of clothes that they put on but nothing is different inside. They still probably come to church once in a while, but their life is empty of any real meaningful engagement with Jesus. And then there's the third choice. And this is where I sincerely hope you are today. The third choice is to embrace the difficulty. To believe that God loves you and is good and will even use this difficulty in some fashion in your life to bring about a good result. You can check out. You can stay but with anger and bitterness. Or you can embrace the trial, embrace the circumstance and believe that God is somehow going to do good with it. 
The challenge that you and I face is to embrace the trials of life, not for what they are, but for what they will result in, what they will do for us, how they will strengthen us, and what God will accomplish through them. You see, when, when we choose to trust God in the difficulty, it produces perseverance or, or staying power. It means I'm not going to be thrown off my faith just because there's a difficulty as tragic and as hard and as painful as it is. I'm going to continue to hold on because I do believe that God is good and that he will somehow use this even for good in my life and the lives of the people around me. This is not some passive resignation. It's like, I'm going to endure this. But this is an active embracing of God's ultimate purpose. Let me, let me put it a little differently for a moment. We've, we follow the story of our lives. And in a sense, we oftentimes buy into that counterfeit Christianity, that, that the good I want is the good that God will do for me. And when he doesn't, then we're disappointed in him, little thinking that maybe the good that I want isn't the good that I should have. That the things that I think are best for me may not be the best for me. We write our story so that we have comfort and ease and good things and everything turns out well. So that as C.S. Lewis would have said, at the end of our life we could say, a good time was had by all. That's how we write our story. We don't write pain and difficulty and struggle into it. We write only good things. And we think that's the story that God is writing with us. Little realizing that there's our story, our smaller story, and that above that is God's bigger story. That he's writing a different story that is not just for our ease and comfort, but it's for our good and our ultimate benefit and for our growth to maturity, we focus on the smaller story because it feels good and it makes us comfortable. And sometimes our smaller story fits well with God's bigger story, but there are times when it doesn't. And that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or is punishing us. It means that God's bigger story will ultimately control the ultimate story. And can I be willing to trust him enough to lay aside my smaller story to begin to live within his bigger story? Ah, that's the challenge. Some people don't. That's why they walk away. Others don't like the bigger story because it doesn't have everything that they want, and, and they may stick around, but they're angry and bitter. But, but the person who is truly Walking in God's bigger story says, yes, even the difficulties I know are being used by him to accomplish good things in my heart and life. That's why James says then, ultimately, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we trust that bigger story, when we walk faithfully even through the difficulties, we become more mature and complete in our faith. It becomes not just something that we believe, it's something that becomes impacting every aspect of our lives. It changes how we view the difficulties because now we know that God is at work to accomplish good things. You know, let's be honest. 
Most things of value require a struggle. You don't get physically fit without exercise and sweat and a little pain. You don't grow your business without putting in lots of work and lots of extra hours and making sacrifices as that business gets launched. And I will tell you this, you don't grow your faith without choosing to trust God in the middle of difficult circumstances. Larry Crabb is a Christian psychologist and author. And in his fine little book called When God's Ways Make No Sense, he says this, only in difficulty do I depend on and therefore discover a strength I can remain ignorant of when I am living well in comfort. When things are going well, it's easy not to trust God. But when in difficulty, then I lean into him and I find a strength that I didn't know was there because everything was going so well. And that deepens my faith. It strengthens my bond with him. And I become a stronger, more mature, more complete follower of Jesus. If you want to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus, it doesn't happen just because things are going well. In fact, it oftentimes makes us depend on him less because things are good. Well, I don't need him right now. I've got it well in control. And then when we hit that difficulty, we find that we do need him. And when we choose to trust him and walk closely with him and believe that he is with us in this and he will bring good through it somehow, our faith becomes more mature when we take our eyes off our smaller story and trust him for the bigger story, we become more mature and more complete in our walk with Jesus. James says, in the end, this is the only way to receive this benefit. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That when it's all said and done, at the end of life, when we stand before the living God of the universe, because we have stood firm in our faith, because we have trusted him, even when we didn't know the outcome, he says, well done. And he gives to us that wreath, that, that wreath that now signifies faithfulness and commitment and trust and perseverance. There is no greater reward. There is no greater prize. As I bring this talk to a close, I want to take you back to that couple I talked about way at the beginning. That woman who had had the stroke and the husband who was sitting by her side. The woman in the bed and the man in the chair were my parents. Days earlier, my mom had suffered a debilitating stroke. A stroke that left her with permanent deficits that would require her to spend the rest of her life in a nursing home. That was painful enough. My mom had always been active, always serving, and now she couldn't do anything for herself. But even harder was hearing my dad say what he had said. To talk about how 
he had been faithful and, and he and mom had served and they had been generous with their time and with their resources. And then to hear him say, but how could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. That was hard for me to hear from my dad. My parents became followers of Jesus in their mid-20s after they had been married a few years. And it revolutionized their lives. And for 50-plus years, my parents had been faithful followers of Jesus and servants. And then to hear my dad ask questions like that, to question God's goodness, God's faithfulness, that was challenging for me. I knew he was at a crossroads. I knew he was at a point where he's going to have to make a choice. I knew he wouldn't walk away from God. I knew he wouldn't quit. But I did fear that maybe he would trust God with an angry, bitter, vengeful heart. That he'd feel like God let him down by doing this to his wife. And he'd spend the rest of his life angry at God. Well, I'm happy to tell you that that was not the case. There were those days in the early stages of mom's decline. But dad's faith was strong and deep. And as he wrestled his way through, he came back to say, I have no alternative but to trust him and to believe that God is still good and still faithful and still worthy of my trust. He wouldn't have used the, the smaller story, the bigger story, but I think he began to realize that what he wanted was a smaller story and what God had for he and mom was a bigger story. He persevered in that trust for the seven years of mom's decline until she passed away. And for the four years that he lived after that, his trust actually deepened. It's exactly what James said would happen. That is, we persevere, we become mature and complete. And I saw my dad's faith grow and I saw his heart become more tender. And I saw a change in his life. Here's what I call the waiting room bottom line. Let me put it straightforward for you. Trials are inevitable. We can't avoid it. We can't get away from it. Jesus said they're going to be there. And your life experience and my life experience confirms it. Trials are inevitable. Trust in God is imperative. If you don't trust in him, you're left to do the best you can on your own, which is always insufficient, always inadequate. But if you can submit your smaller story to his greater story and trust that he is still good and still faithful and still loving and that he is somehow writing a larger story that you may not even be able to see, you continue to trust in him. You continue to hold on to him, to believe that he is indeed trustworthy. And then perseverance deepens our faith. That as we continue to trust, as we continue to hold on, our faith grows strong and our faith grows deep and we become mature and complete. And someday, not only do we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but we receive the crown of life that God gives to all who persevere. We're going to close today's uh, talk with a song. It's a song written by Lauren Daigle. It's titled, Look Up, Child. 
I love this song and ask that the band sing it for us today at the end of the talk because it's a great reminder that no matter how dark the day, how difficult the circumstance, how fearful the moment, God is still in control. God is still worthy of our trust. That in those darkest moments, we need to look not at the situation that weighs so heavily on us, but as Lauren Daigle writes, we need to look up. We need to take our eyes away from the circumstance and look up and trust him and believe in him. As the band gets set, as they come back out here, I I wanna share with you a couple of discussion questions for you to think about maybe over lunch today or with your small group later this week, some discussion questions that I think really fit well with what we've been talking about. First of all, we all face trials that come through no fault of our own. They just are. Tell about a trial you faced or maybe a trial that you're facing right now. What was your initial reaction to that difficulty? What was your first response? How did you think about it? Talk about that together. Second, were you, somewhere in the process of that struggle, able to choose joy? At what point did you make that choice, and how did you come to that decision? How did that change your view of the difficulty? And then this third question. As you began to emerge from that trial, or maybe even as you're coming through that trial, how did your faith in God grow or change? Good questions, thoughtful questions, to help us reframe the difficulties of life so that we can begin to view them with eyes of faith and trust. Listen now as the band comes to sing that Lauren Daigle song, Look Up, Child.
Thank you. Would you join me, please, as we pray? Father, we will acknowledge that it is hard to choose joy in the midst of trials and difficulties. It is hard to look up when our circumstances seem so great and overwhelming. So give us faith to trust. Help us in our weakness to trust you. You are strong. You are sufficient. Help us to trust you, not to walk away, not to give up, not to get angry, but to trust the greater story that you are writing, the greater story which is for our good, our growth, our maturity, our completion. Thank you that we can trust you no matter what it is, great or small. You are trustworthy, you are loving, you are good. And we thank you for the story that you're writing and the ability to trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.